everybody, this is Wise Guy Talks coming to you with episode number 18. Today we are going to be talking about the Republican Waterloo with my uh, co-host Fred Stovall. Uh, we'll be right back in about uh, two shakes. Fred, how are you doing today, brother? I'm doing terrific. Thanks very much for hosting me. This is the first time I've uh, participated in a podcast after really? listening to them for what's years. Your, what's your favorite podcast? Who do you like to listen to other than A Wise Guy Talks? Actually, my favorite has become a video podcast uh, that's hosted by Dave Rubin, yeah. who is actually a converted uh, liberal right. and uh, I think is is apt for our conversation because... One of the uh, one of the folks who have been driven out of the uh, of what the modern Democrat Party has become. Yeah, Dave Rubin, Ben Shapiro, I think to some extent kind of falls into that category, even though he may have been conservative all along. I'm not quite for sure of his provenance. Shapiro was always conservative. Yeah, yeah. The guy, Ben Shapiro, must have a brain that is wired at 220 volts because I can't. He talks so fast, sometimes I have a hard time my brain processing the information. I'm thinking, how does a guy talk that fast? And uh, yeah, I don't get it. I mean, how do you conjugate those kind of thoughts in your head uh, so quickly? Yeah. He is, uh, right. he's certainly a rapid, uh, a rapid fire delivery. And, uh, and it's also shocking, given his age, that he was actually one of the first contributors to Breitbart when Andrew Breitbart was still alive. Right. Um, so. But yeah, I think the uh, the development of the alternative um, conservative media, if you will, I, I think has been a uh, uh, a fairly important development, especially for um, younger folks who who didn't uh, grow up just assuming that the legacy media was the only source of of information. Yeah, and the legacy media me, to me was the Walter Cronkite media, just to kind of date myself. But it's funny, we never really questioned those guys. We just always thought that they were giving the news as it occurred. We never, It never even occurred to me that there was any degree of bias um, on their part at all, that they were just strictly delivering the news. And man, have we gotten far from that. Well, it's that model has changed dramatically because there is actually a business aspect to it now. And, you know, I'm like you, uh, I'm a child of the, of the three or whatever you want to call it, Fox three and a half broadcast network world. And, um, it's, it's simply a different environment. Remember at that time, the network news wasn't designed to make money. In fact, it consistently lost money, but it was seen as a public service in order to, um, to probably gain some goodwill and also to, uh, because I think the original broadcast news operators had some ideas about what they ought to be doing. But the, the world that's, that's created now with so many inputs into the news and opinion delivery model has just changed that forever. And essentially the legacy media, one of the reasons why they've become largely an adjunct of liberal politics is because conservative opinion makers and commentators that would have appeared on those shows have all gone elsewhere. Um, 
before we get too far into that, <clears throat> tell tell the listener a little bit about yourself, who you are, where you're from, what you do, you know, what your interests are. Uh, well, I'm uh, first of all, I will say that I am uh, completely unqualified to offer my opinions about any of the subjects that. Uh, well, you'll fit right in here. <laughs> that we're likely to discuss. Uh, I'm a, a native Texan. Was born uh, and raised in the uh, North Texas area. Uh, grew up in you know, bedroom community suburbs, uh, went to college and law school in Texas and have been a practicing You're a lawyer. lawyer. I mean, a lawyer. Absolutely. Oh my I, gosh. Uh, what kind of law do you do? I, uh, essentially buy and sell companies for investors. Uh-huh. And so, uh, I'm one of the, uh, probably few lawyers that I have never sued anybody, <laughs> have never represented anybody who's, who's been sued in a courtroom in fact, uh, all my appearances in a courtroom have been as a witness. Why is it that so many lawyers are pretty far left liberal? Oh, they're not. Um, the trial lawyers are. Yeah, I guess because, I should have qualified that. Because remember that in or if you're going to be in the business of suing people, you need to have laws that um, create things that you can sue people for. And that means assigning liability to people that have money. And that's not to say that some of those people don't deserve to be sued, but by and large, you know, liberal and Democrat politics have been more interested in um, assigning liability that people can get sued for than Republicans have been. So the name of the show today is going to be Republican Waterloo. And there's been a lot of gnashing of teeth since this last presidential election. I think a lot of people are concerned that we're looking at 1960, you know, Richard Nixon into the Republican party and that uh, maybe we, we should fight a little harder this time than we did back in 1960. So that's the idea behind today's show and my idea is to bring you on is you tend to be a little more in the center um, than a lot of the guests that I have on here, a little more of a centrist. And I, I think you have some interesting ideas. I kind of did a pre-interview with you. And, and you don't see this as the end, the Waterloo for the Republican Party, do you? No. Why? Because the way that the Democrat Party has decided to define itself, I think, is going to be extremely difficult to maintain long term. I think that basically putting all of your um, emphasis on um, racial minorities over the, their, their traditional voting base, which was the working class, is going to turn out to be a tremendous mistake. When, when do you think that, when did you personally in your life see the big change happening? I mean, I can go back almost to JFK. I was born in 58, so yeah, definitely was too young to remember him at all. But I remember my family talking about him, and they were JFK Democrats, but not in a million years could they uh, support what has happened to the Democrat Party. When did you see it change in measurable ways in the last decade, two decades? And what do you think caused that change? I think that from my perspective, the real shift in the way Democrats sought to define themselves came about after the Clinton administration. And 
what's caused that, in my opinion, is a much larger societal shift about the death of organized labor um, and, and specifically the death of private organized labor. During the, the heyday of the Democratic Party, the driving force of Democrat Party support was, you know, blue-collar workers, and largely that support was expressed through private labor unions. Uh, the economic changes that have been undertaken, namely driven by the death of manufacturing in the United States that occurred in the 80s and 90s, have caused many of those um, traditional blue-collar unions to shrink dramatically. And I also think that as manufacturing has, has shifted in how it's, um, how it's undertaken, a lot of the current manufacturing workers have rejected unionization. And so as a result, that, that huge democratic power base in labor unions has been fairly effectively eviscerated, other than government employee unions, which is certainly one of the largest contributors generally to, to Democrat politics at this point. I know you're something of a historian, and from what I, I, I read a book from uh, FDR called FDR Goes to War, and in that book, I don't know if you heard of him or not, he's a uh, historian here in Texas, Burton Folsom, wrote the book. Highly recommend it <laughs> if you haven't uh, read it already. But he talks about in the black community in America, they tended to be very conservative up until about the 1930-ish, 36, 38 period where there was a big shift and it had nothing to do with uh, racism or anything like that. It was purely economics and FDR had targeted that group as he had targeted a lot of other groups to, to bring them on. And the only reason I bring out the point is, is look where we are right now. This last election, I believe I saw the numbers were 83% of the black folks voted uh, for Biden that, that came out and voted. Why do you think that they are still voting in such large numbers when the numbers that represent their success in life over the last four years have come up fairly dramatically? Well, I think there's, there's, there's two um, effects going on. First of all, I think there is a lot of historical loyalty to the Democratic Party um, as an after effect of the terrible manner in which black people in the United States were treated up until the 60s and 70s. And I, I think that in a lot of ways that uh, Democrats did a good job of aligning themselves with that, um, with that fairly righteous um, uh, backlash uh, against the terrible effects of slavery and Jim Crow. However, I will also say that I think that one of the failings of Republicans, and this really occurred uh, and continues to occur to a certain degree, but certainly Republicans have failed to do a good job of advocating themselves as a, as a party and really conservatism generally as beneficial to minority communities. Um, we've been somewhat more successful with uh, Asians and Hispanics, largely because there is a much larger percentage of recent immigrants there. But, um, but I think that, that one of the failings you can point to and on the behalf of the Republican Party is, it's, it is it is 
from to some degree, I think oversight, uh, and for some degree, you know, the fact where where votes easier to get, um, that Republicans have not done a good job of reaching out to minorities and to specifically um, to black voters. Interesting, <clears throat> because if you if you watch the way that Trump han- handled this over the last four years, he really made a big outreach. Uh, put more money into black colleges. Um, you, you know, he tried to repeal some of the laws that were putting black folks in jail for just crazy periods of time from relatively minor drug violations. And yet it's almost like he got no credit for that. Well, he almost doubled his vote, though. I mean, you've got to remember that for for Donald Trump, with the baggage that he was carrying to have achieved um, – you know, almost 20% of the black vote is, is an extraordinary success, I think, from his, from his perspective. Yeah. Where, where Trump, I believe, really failed is to moderate his tone so that more centrist Republicans or, or more conservative independents would vote for him without putting any, any finer point on it just because they found his personal behavior to be reprehensible. Yeah, that's... That was an emotional decision not to vote on him based on emotion other than looking at the pure facts, which I personally have a difficult time understanding, but hey. So hopefully going forward, we we went some le- we learned some lessons from this. When I say that this is the Republican Waterloo, you clearly don't think it's the end of the Republican Party. And what is our path to success in the future? I mean, the Democrats just going to throw uh, impale themselves on so many swords uh, for the stuff that they're doing right now, that they that all we have to do is just sit back and watch them dig their own grave. Well, I would never say that you should just simply sit back and watch them dig their own grave, but they are certainly digging as fast as they can. Um, you know, for someone like Biden, who ran as the, in some ways, the the traditional centrist, uh, to have spent the first literally week of his presidency kowtowing to every single liberal position and and offered virtually no um, reinforcement that he intends to be a centrist at all I think is a um, is a gift to the to the Republican Party and Republicans generally because it it reinforces the fact that no matter what, the Democrats say the reality is is their constituency is not going to enable them to be anything but a hard left uh, as a government philosophy because all the people that would advocate for for more moderation and centrism have been essentially driven out of the party. And it, I think they're going they're in the process of putting capes on a lot of people, Superman capes. I, I think if you look at Josh Hawley, there's a really good chance that. That Senator Harley from Missouri, I believe, right? Mm-hmm. And I believe that he's going to come out as a real hero because they they uh, dropped his book. Uh, who was it? Simon and Schuster. Simon and Schuster dropped it. They they dropped his book. Now apparently another publisher has uh, agreed to publish the book. Mm-hmm. But I mean, they they're making martyr, mar- martyrs out of these guys left and right. Right. I I think he may turn out to be a real face for the Republican Party in uh, four years, three and a half years? Well, if you just look at the stable of potential Republican presidential contenders vis-a-vis the stable of potential Democratic contenders, I would suggest that 
the I would if I was just looking at this tactically about who's how best to win, irrespective of ideology, I, I think the Republican hand is much much stronger. Um, and frankly, all you have to do is look at who were the final candidates from the you know enormous gaggle of um, of Democrats that ran for that ran for president in this last election cycle. Truth being, you know, it's obvious that only only Biden, who is on the verge of decrepitude, was even close to being a survivor. All the other even moderate Democrats were flushed out of the system far before, you know, they even the voting began. And you ended up with a situation where the only reason that Biden ultimately became the nominee is the Democrats began to contemplate the disaster that would befall them if Bernie Sanders was actually the top of their ticket. And that was what was going to happen if it wasn't Joe Biden, because it was clear that none of the other candidates that were still in the race at that point, um, you know, Elizabeth Warren, Kamala Harris, um, other than Bernie, were going to be able to build a coalition that could be a winner. And so essentially, if, if, if those other candidates didn't drop out, and endorsed Biden, um, Bernie was going to be their nominee. But if you had taken Biden out of the picture, let's say that Biden had chosen not to run, and now they're faced with, for example, putting Kamala Harris at the top of the ticket or Elizabeth Warren at the top of the ticket, well, that might be somewhat better than Bernie. But, you know, those hard left coastal candidates, they just have a, going to be extremely hard time winning elections. And... Um, and I think that's unfortunately what they're going to be left with because all of, uh, all of the other more moderate candidates who are from Montana, for example, the governor of Montana, I believe, and um, senator from Colorado, those folks didn't, didn't even make it you know, past the first round of, of cuts. And so uh, there's nothing, I see nothing either from what happened in the 2016 Democratic primaries or the way that Joe Biden has surrounded himself with traditional hard liberals and spent the first week of his presidency essentially going down that hard liberal line. What choice did he have? <laughs> well, that's that's the point. Is that I mean, clearly, wasn't that, didn't he make a Faustian deal? Um, wasn't he dealing with the devil already? He had no choice. I well, mean, Yes. I mean, I think that's exactly right. Clearly he was, if he was going to be president, then he was going to have to make a deal with some, some really hard liberals. And the problem is, is that the United States is not, is not hard liberal as a, as a country. The electorate is not, is going to, is not going to support that. And if you look at that, um, there have been candidates that were able to survive, you know, Barack Obama is a good example where largely because of his kind of personal magnetism, which there's no doubt that, that Barack Obama was, a, was an excellent politician, but what he caused on the, Republic, on the Democratic Party nationwide as far as massive losses in Congress, in the U.S. Congress, massive losses in state legislatures and governorships, I would say that, uh, that in, in some ways, you know, Barack Obama really did the Republican Party a favor by shifting the Democrat Party into the position it is now, where it is basically pushed away its traditional voter base. So there's a lot of uh, Republicans, several of my friends have their hair on fire. Glenn Beck, 
broadcast a couple of days ago where he basically threw his papers out at the end of his little monologue where he is just, he goes, I've had enough. I've had it. I've had it up to here with what they've done, you know, to parlor what they've done to Trump with this Twitter feed and the way that they're silencing us. This is all very dystopian and I've had enough. And my, my buddy who I was talking to on the phone will be listening to this podcast in, in Florida you know, he goes, I'm so sick of it that I'm no longer Republican. I'm, I'm an independent. And I go, what good is that going to do? <laughs> so talk to these people that have their hair on fire that feel like this is a, the Republican Waterloo and that we'll never have power again because we've lost so much in you know, the last 30 days. Well, I, I think that it's easy. Let me just say that that generally my opinion is, is that people put far too much emphasis on presidential elections. Um, I think they should recall that the founders very wisely set up the system so that it retards progress. It, it makes it extraordinarily difficult for one election cycle to be terribly impactful. And while I wouldn't say that it's not impactful at all, I think that's, that's relatively foolish, I think even if you look at, for example, again, Barack Obama, who was very liberal, at the end of the day, how much did the eight years of Obama really change that wasn't undone relatively rapidly by, let's be honest, um, whatever you think of the policies, a fairly dysfunctional Republican administration as far as actually getting getting things done. Um, so it's it's easy, I think, to see electoral defeats in, in fairly cataclysmic terms. What I would say to those folks who are, um, uh, they've lost faith is that they should keep in mind that, that, again, a single election is not that important. Other than the presidential election, which, which Trump lost incredibly narrowly. Um, in fact, you can reduce... Trump's defeat basically down to six or seven counties in the entire United States. That's insane. And um, which is also, you know, in some way, some people would point to that's how he won narrowly as well. But if you look at what happened to Republicans on virtually every down ballot race, excluding Florida, which Florida is a little bit of an anomaly because it had so much national attention. And I think that um, there, there was a confluence of events, including, you know, Trump's action in Florida himself, but also not terribly strong Republican candidates there. Um, the Demo the Republican Party did remarkably well, given that their nominee nominee for president actually lost. How important are local elections in the big scheme of things? We just talked about the executive in the House and. Congress, but ultimately, what impacts our life more? Is it the national election or what's going on in our local communities? Oh, well, there's no doubt. I mean, people, the way that I tell people to think about elections and their importance is that they are, if they think of their national election, they are 10 times more likely to interact with their state government than they are with the federal government. And they're 10 times more likely to interact with their local government than they are with the federal, with their state government. So what that means is, is the people that actually govern you in the local level 
are about a hundred times more impactful, in my opinion, to the people that uh, make make laws at the federal level. And I think you're exactly spot on. You were a school board, correct? Uh, that's correct. I was city councilman, and and I there was something about those elections that I find really real because in a local election it becomes very difficult to go negative. We were just talking about this today because you have to think of a local election as like a big spider web and that spider can fill any, any of the smallest little inputs to that web anywhere. It shakes the entire web. So it becomes very difficult because sooner than later, you're talking about somebody's family in a negative way if you decide to go negative. And to some extent, so it becomes difficult to, to go negative in the local elections. And I think that kind of differentiates itself because as soon as you get to regional state, particularly national, I mean, these guys are just saying some of the nastiest things you can imagine. But I agree with you. I think the local elections, if I want to pass a red light camera law, um, I have a direct impact on your life. And that's one of the things I ran against was red light cameras. That's how I won. It was a mm -hmm. single issue of red light cameras plus occupancy inspections. There were some fat cat bankers that wanted the occupancy inspections to keep people like me out of the real estate market and because they knew that they had big impact in the city. And so I fought hard against red light cameras and occupancy inspections, and I kept it simple to those two issues, and I worked really hard, and I, I won the election. I only won by 10 votes, mm -hmm. but a win's a win. <laughs> no, I won by 16. Uh, it, was, uh, it was certainly within the margin of error, but I think you're exactly right that you know, when you think about what local government does as far as managing schools, as far as managing cities, parks, local police, it, there's far more local businesses and the, the way that local businesses are allowed to operate. The truth is, is that most people, even though that doesn't get the news coverage, um, their lives are far more impacted by local government than they are by the state or federal government. Would you be interested in coming back in another episode talking about local politics, particularly what's going on in our high school with CCAP, some of the diversity, some of those issues in another show? Sure. I'm happy to do that. I'm actually uh, recently put on the Carol Asti Diversity Committee, um, so I can, uh, that's currently under a restraining order pursuant to a lawsuit, but I'm happy to talk about it in my individual capacity. So it, it was interesting because this is obviously audio only. There's no video, but folks, when I asked him that question, I saw, I saw the alligator eyes go up. So immediately I'm reading your body language, seeing a little reticence on your part. And that's, I, I forgot all about the restraining order. Uh, so yes, we'll come back and we'll do an episode on uh, what's going on in some of these local communities Code of conduct versus uh, what they call what we call the CCAP here, Cultural Competency Action Plan, I believe is what it stands for, and it kind of redefines uh, the way our children are treated to some dramatic extent. Do you tend to agree with that or disagree? Am I categorizing it properly? Yeah, I I think that the the challenge there is that there at least here locally. Um, there's a debate about what ought to be done. And I think that um, to some degree, I, I would be surprised if this wasn't a debate that was going on in a lot of communities, but I won't pretend to know what. No, it is. And national. that's why we're, 
I don't want to go too far down this road and I don't mean to shut you off, but I think, I think we, this is literally a two hour conversation that we're kind of dancing around here. Uh, it goes to the importance of local elections though. You know, people poo poo those. They shouldn't. If you really want to have a big impact on what your kids are taught, um, the way that your, your neighborhoods develop commercial real estate, the way that, that develops, the local elections have dramatically more impact on that than I believe than federal elections. Interesting thing though, totally off topic. I, I we, we were talking about impactful people in history. Um, and I was telling you about Thomas Hobbes and Jean-Jacques uh, Rousseau, uh, some of these European philosophers, UK philosophers, mm -hmm. and you mentioned John Locke. Mm -hmm. Why do you like John Locke so much or respect him or my, I mean, what's your opinion about John Locke? Well, I, I think that what I like about Locke was the fact that his philosophical approach, you know, the, the three folks that, that we're talking about here, Rousseau, Hobbes, and Locke, all their discussions occurred uh, basically at the, at the end of the Renaissance and at the, really the dawn of true representative democracy. And what they were what they were thinking about and writing about was what is the nature of people left to their own devices? What were, or what will people tend to do? Will they tend to fall upon each other and essentially go through a social Darwinistic or just a Darwinistic struggle where the strongest survives or will they, will they tend to act in a more collective fashion? That's what Hobbes believed. He believed it dismantled down it, and that's why he believed in the the power of the king uh, a lot. Even though he didn't feel like the the king's power came from God, he still believed that it prevented chaos within a community, which was kind of divergent compared to what uh, Rousseau believed. His his idea was correct that if we go back to the beginning, what did, what did they call? They had a special, state of nature. State of nature, exactly. Yeah, and that was and and Locke's position as well was that basically that people are good that um there while there are bad actors that most people want to conduct themselves in a way that is not destructive to other people and they want to get along and they want to live their lives without uh, being predatory and i think uh that i i I'll be honest, I think the evidence is relatively overwhelming that that's the truth that Hobbes was in fact wrong that you don't need a king basically constantly with uh, the boot on everybody's neck in order to prevent just wide, you know, just some kind of wide, wide scale chaos and anarchy. And which I found somewhat ironic because if you go back to the French Revolution, what, 1790-ish, early mm -hmm. 1790, uh, Rousseau was held up as uh, a hero even though he believed in, he was a really peaceful guy. He was, uh, grew up in Geneva, Switzerland, mm -hmm. and then he ended up, I think, in Paris. And, and it was strange that they would pick up his philosophy as one of the cornerstones to the French Revolution, but maybe I'm going too far down the rabbit hole on this. Well, I think, you know, the French Revolution is important because it, would, it proved to be so instructive to the fears about the concentration of power. Um, and I think that if you, and, and this is one of the reasons that I think that our system is so superior to 
the more parliamentary systems is because it's, it's difficult to aggregate power. And if you look at the history of the 20th century, the one lesson that you can take away from the history of the 20th century, in my opinion, is, is that the aggregation of unchecked power, whether by revolution or by election, in a single group of individuals is extraordinarily bad. Um, most people, you know, point to the Russian Revolution, which probably resulted in somewhere, certainly in excess of 10 million deaths, um, and and almost certainly much higher. But the truth is, we'll never know how many people were killed in in the you know Ukrainian famines. Um, you look at the armed revolution that brought the Communist Chinese Party to power which, again, certainly resulted in excess of 10 million deaths in the Cultural Revolution. But the Nazi Party was elected. You know, Adolf Hitler came to power through parliamentary action, not through armed revolution. And the fact that, that the Nazis were able to aggregate power so quickly and so completely, and of course, you know, he also was another, you know, certainly more than 10 million people died. Um, and in my takeaway from that is it's, it's a really bad thing when, whether by election or otherwise, any group is able to aggregate total power quickly. It was this, uh, you know, when you have teenagers, I don't know how old your kids are, but I've got a um, sophomore in high school. So having conversations at dinner time can be challenging with the seventeen year old. My daughter supported Joe Biden. Okay. Well you don't have to Although she's you thirteen. You so don't have to say really everything that's on your mind. <laughs> <laughs> there are natural filters for that. But uh so the my my question to my boy was I said because uh, I was kind of curious how deep the local school system had taught history to him, and I asked him, I said have you heard of John Locke? And he goes, yes. And I go, what, what do you know about him? He goes, well, he's English and he believed in the natural laws. And I said, well, not bad. I'm, I'm pretty darn impressed. And you know, he, he was also a big defender of, uh, second amendment. Well, they didn't have second amendment, but he thought that a society ought to be well armed. And the reason they said that, and I'm, I'm leading to something with this. He believed that if, if your government, your elected official, who we give the power to to represent us, they fail in that social contract, and the whole idea of social contract, I think, came from Hobbes. But if if they fail in that social contract and they become despot and tyrannical, that's why they believe. That's why he believed that we should have arms to be able to at least have a fair fight to, to throw the to throw the uh, the despots back. Well, and that's exactly what you saw in in France and in the United States or, or what became the United States. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't think that, uh, I don't really think that there is a, um, argument that when a government becomes tyrannical, uh, it, it shouldn't be overthrown philosophically. I mean, that's clearly what the big issue that confronted the hereditary aristocracies of the uh, of the late 18th century. 
King's, were being King's confronted verse, with. Kings versus Parliament, English Civil War, mm-hmm. quarter million people. <laughs> yeah, I mean the British. The British literally spent four hundred years fighting about who's going to be in charge. Yeah, and finally, after enough kings uh, were beheaded. <laughs> That we, that's that's where it uh, that, that was that was conclusively determined. You feel good about our our republic, though. You feel that we're we, are we taking a detour? Or are we just kind of hidden in a natural path? I mean, are you okay with where we are? Um, are you hopeful for your kids for our future? Oh yeah, I think that I, I think that people who again are focusing on the last four years in particular, I, I think are simply taking a, a, a too short view because, and I know that we've talked about this and I don't want to get too far afield of, of the topic, but I, I think that you, you have to take into account when you're looking at current events, the incredible shift that's happening in, in human society generally where you know we are we are becoming a technological society where the dissemination of information is happening so rapidly um, on a scale that is never even was was never even contemplated. Remember Moore's law? What was it? A doubling every was it six years that the ability for but information? The concept. But we've we've reached something exponentially beyond that, the amount of information now that can be passed within a short period of time. I mean, mm-hmm. who is it that said that uh, a lie will travel halfway around the world before the truth will get its <laughs> shoes tied? Well, there was a, actually there's a book uh, by Kurzweil called The Singularity is Near that I often recommend. It was actually written, um, not a recent, not a recent work at all, but it talked about the fact that by singularity, what he was referring to, and this is a guy who's been an incredible inventor of his, of his, you know, of I think he's um, not active. He was much more active previously. In fact, he may have passed away. I don't know. But his idea about singularity was the t- the amount of time it takes between the occurrence of an event or an idea and the transmission of that to the general population. And if you think about it. You know, even um, when some groundbreaking science less than 100 years ago, that would take years, if not decades. Uh, how long, for example, was it before Einstein begins to postulate theories in the early 20th century and those theories become generally accepted and taught is an extraordinary decades. amount of time. And yet now you literally have people broadcasting off of their phones at world events as those events are occurring. I, I, th- I think this represents another episode <laughs> that we could talk about <laughs> is communication, the internet, section 230. Uh, I mean, there, and, and the way the voices are either, either amplified or the opposite of it, where they're muted, uh, I think becomes problematic in a lot of ways. And I, I, I think we have another episode just on this subject alone. Well, it's, it's, you can either look at these changes in a dystopian fashion or a utopian fashion. I just, you know, it's because you can say, for example, that's a great example of the censorship that, that Facebook is applying and some of the more big tech companies are applying. Um, but that's, frankly, I'm a little bit sympathetic to them 
because they're confronting problems that were never a problem previously. I mean, it wasn't previously an issue that you would have people that are committing crimes um, that were literally encouraging other people to join in while they're committing the crime. And I actually, and I'm, I'm not necessarily referring to the, the business that went on at the Capitol, although, look, I, I want to be clear, uh, I, I'm not in favor of storming the U.S. Capitol. I wasn't at the time, and I'm not dismissing. I, I, or, I think my definition of storming the Capitol may be a little different than yours being in enough. the Marine Corps. I, I think a, if I planned to storm a Capitol, I, I would have left a couple of potholes in the wall. Well, and, and I'll say that— I, I, I mean, a guy that's got face paint on and freaking bullhorns, come on, give me a break. Really? Yeah, the, the mink viking? Um, yeah, that's the one. Well, and it's clear and that He's going to get 25 years for that compared to to real full-blown criminals, crim, criminals that are being released in the streets of L.A. But Well, that's a, I mean, that's a fair point. Don't it's get clear me going on I've, it. I've had arguments um, with friends about, you know, if that was an insurrection, it was, remar- it was a remarkably incompetent insurrection. Velvet. Because they, they in <laughs> fact, didn't have any— um, they, did, they did succeed in shutting down the Congress, but as far as seizing power— I mean, that was one of the most remarkably unsuccessful insurrections in the history of man. And you know that, that when people's principal, um, principal goal was apparently to take a selfie of exactly. themselves sitting at Nancy Pelosi's desk and then just leave. Uh, again, I'm not really sure that's what I had in mind when, I, when the term insurrection I I can tell up. you the, the, there was a Puerto Rican terrorist group that actually did do a full-on attack uh, in Congress and people were killed and they did blow up stuff. And, uh, I can't remember the name. It's been way too long. I'll, I'll prep on that for next time, but there have been real attempts at insurrection. And to me, to words are very important. And when you, when you, uh, call that dumbassery, when you want to call that an insurrection, that's, uh, that's intentionally using words to inflame, you know, I, I, I with you, I think it was really stupid on their part to do that. We could have done without that headache, no doubt about it. But to call it an, an, uh, an insurrection is, to, to me, it's just taking a little bit way too much liberty with language. Well, actually, yeah. And, and um, if you look at the activities, for example, of the Weather Underground, had they had access to social media, how much more damage could they have caused? Or you look at the, uh, I mean, if you want to actually look at an insurrection, what's going on in Portland, with their, in fact, seizure of control of a certain part of the city of Portland, where the Portland government had no effective control about the day-to-day activities, that in fact was an insurrection. They set up their own government. They set up whatever they called it. I don't remember now. I mean, that was an insurrection. That was armed, and people were being shot and killed, and the property was being destroyed. That's not what happened in Washington, D.C., that but, I agree with. But, but that, and, and that's actually what I was more referring to. Yeah, I figured so. Was where, you know, the, the, the basically the method of communication that was being used by those folks who were mounting a real challenge to government power was social media. And on the other hand, that having been said, um, I, I think we, you, you, in order to be fair, you also have to point out the fact that the fact that I can get on uh, Facebook and have a conversation with someone literally on the other side of the world um, for free 
for nothing but the cost of the telephone that I've already bought. Oh, it's insane. It's shocking. Yeah. And and it's something that would have been in in my opinion 20 years ago if someone would have said, "Hey, I'm going to get on my phone that I carry around in my pocket and I'm going to have a video call with somebody on the other side of the world." They would have been looked at as if they were basically postulating an episode of Star Trek. Right. Uh, you know, Child Decency Act uh, Section 230 was uh, born through the, I believe it was called the Child Decency Act, and it was all about keeping porn, particularly child porn, off the internet. That's what they were really concerned about at the time. And the liability that some of the people that are putting content are the owners of the nodes were being sued by corporations because they just happened to be the part of the conduit of information that went through that node. So they decided to sue the node owner, and that's why they uh, fine gold, I think it was, put an end to, that's when they passed Section 230. And it treated uh, these Internet providers like a uh, post office, what I think is a really good way to think of it, because your post office is not responsible for the crap that comes into their sorting area and then is passed out to other people. That's that's mm-hmm. part of the people that are on either end of that deal. And, and they gave these uh, platforms the ability to moderate to some extent but I think they've gone way beyond what the original idea was and I I, I agree with you 100% this thing has morphed into directions a hydra-headed monster that could have never been foreseen even five years ago mm-hmm. I mean that it's blown up that much but all interesting stuff I think we're going to wrap it up here we've been on on for about 30 minutes I know you've got some things you have to go take care of Fred Stovall, thank you so much for coming on Wise Guy Talks and talking to us today. Maybe this is not the Republican Waterloo. Maybe there's hope for us after all. I'm, I'm hopeful and relatively confident that uh, this will just be another uh, twist and turn. But no in history. The, uh, that's right. I mean, you think about it. Uh, we, are, we are the most successful democracy in the history of human history history of history, I guess, if if you want to use that tautology. And um, I I think that in our history is a series of corrections. And if we go too far, we correct back. And I think we've been remarkably good at that. So as as a Republican, a lifelong Republican, I actually think uh, the future of our party has has never been brighter. And so, uh, yeah, I I don't really think this is uh, analogous to Napoleon at Waterloo. Take your, uh, when it opens up again, take take your daughter, 13-year-old daughter, down to Cuba or Venezuela and let her get a good look at what she has possibly faith in. Uh, I've been to both those places, and uh, it would change a lot of attitudes if people that believe in a lot of that stuff that the Democrats believe in. Just take a little trip. Just spend two days with me down there. Come on, let's go. They have great cigars, by the way. Fred, thanks again. I appreciate it quite a bit. We're going to wrap this one up. Everybody, thanks for listening to Wise Guy Talks. Have a great day.